Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Instead of studying all of chapter 16 of Genesis, we're only going to take the first, um, let's say, four verses. So would you stand as we read the Word of God, Genesis chapter 16? We've been going through the historical record of the life of Abram. Actually, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we're on the first four verses of Genesis chapter 16. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, at this point in his life, the one that we know primarily as Abraham is still called Abram. He hasn't had God change his name yet, and his wife who we know primarily as Sarah, has had her name changed to Sarai yet. So we're here dealing with Abram and with Sarai. We pick up the story. At this point in his life, Abram has been 10 years living in the land of Canaan, as we're told in verse 3. So 10 years, Abram has been waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise that he would make of Abram a great nation. So we look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and going back 10 years, we read, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And then God had promised him this, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Now, Some in our church have waited many years to have children. And if you love people, you've suffered with some who have waited many years to have children. Once you enter into the suffering of infertility, as we call it, because we're scientific, and so we refer to it with a word that makes us feel like it has a scientific explanation. Once you've entered into the lives of those who are infertile, you realize that having children is a blessing that we take for granted. And so here Abram and Sarai, ten years have been waiting to have children. Ten years they have known that God promised that God would make them into a great nation. Well, you can't start a great nation if you don't have children. It was very clear to them that God was promising their descendants would be the great nation. It's also very clear to them that it was through those descendants, through God making them a great nation, that they would be a blessing to many. 
So number one, they're going to become a great nation. And number two, they're going to be a blessing to many. This is the promise of Scripture. But Sarah and Abram are tired of waiting. You know what it says in the book of Proverbs? It says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And the hope has been deferred a long time. And so we see in verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Now there are two words for such a woman whose life is lived in subjection to the woman who is her master in Hebrew. One refers to someone we would speak of as just being plain old a slave. And the other refers to someone who had a higher position as the woman of the household's live-in or domestic help. It is the higher word that tends to refer more to those that are in the subjection of live-in domestic help rather than simply an outside-the-house slave that is used here to refer to Hagar. She is an Egyptian, an Egyptian maid, and she is a maid. Now, right here, let's stop and let's put up some guards around this account. You remember the discussion a few years ago whether or not Thomas Jefferson had children by his female slave, Sally Hemings. You remember this? During his lifetime, Jefferson was often accused by his enemies of having fathered a number of children by his slave woman, Hemings. And that has continued to be debated in our own time two centuries later. They've put PhDs on committees. They've done DNA testing on descendants. And there remain good reasons both to doubt and to believe that Sally Hemings' children were sired by the third president of these United States. No one, though, knows with absolute certainty one way or the other. We're dealing in um, probabilities here. We're not dealing in certainties. We do know, however, that the chattel slavery that was the curse of these United States as well as England and many other nations up to a century and a half ago, we do know that this chattel slavery reduced human beings made in the image and likeness of God to an almost subhuman status whereby the blessed bonds of marriage, of fatherhood and motherhood, were subjected to the lusts and greed of white masters and the jealousies of white masters' wives. Slave women were taken into their masters' beds with no choice nor resistance permitted. And they bore those masters' children routinely. These mothers were also routinely separated from the children they gave birth to. And those children routinely were separated from their natural fathers. To facilitate the lusts of the master, women were taken away from their husbands and husbands were sold on the option block. 
and sent away from their wives and children to another owner, a new owner, who lived far away. Many, many slaves were separated from their families, their loved ones. Husbands, wives, sons, and daughters had no possibility of appeal. No possibility of return. Imagine this. Imagine it. The slavery that existed in our nation at the time of its founding, continuing for many, many years, was inhuman on the most fundamental levels of human existence. It was cruel. It was demeaning. It was bloody. It was oppressive. It was immoral on every level. It was... And it remains today a terrible stain on our people and our nation. On our history. And we must never stop confessing this wickedness and repenting of it. In fact, it continues today in the form of the denial of the humanity, not of those with brown and black skin, but of those living in their mother's wombs. Today, it's not Africans who are ripped from the arms of their mothers to be raised by others in a distant state or plantation, but unborn babies who are ripped from the wombs of their mothers and washed down the drain of the sink or tossed into the dumpster in back of the so-called clinic where the Planned Parenthood ghouls ply their bloody trade in murder. The Civil War was not the end of oppression and bloodshed in our nation. It continues through abortion, and the very men and women who pride themselves on their morally superior judgments concerning slavery and racism are the greatest promoters of the slaughter of little babies nestled in their mother's wombs. They speak of choice. They speak of women's self-determination. They are shameless in their hypocrisies. Condemning dead people who owned and oppressed Africans while they themselves justify and promote the wholesale slaughter of unborn babies. Surely we as Christians understand that this is one of the most appalling facts of modern life. That so very many men and women can look down on our great-great-grandparents for enslaving Africans, claiming our repentance for racism while we thoughtlessly drive past the abortuary on South Walnut multiple times a week with not a thought and not the slightest pity for the 700 children murdered there each year. Now, why have I brought this up in connection with Abram and Sarai and Hagar? Well, because it's easy for us to read this account of Abram and Hagar as just another occurrence of the sort of relationship that Thomas Jefferson is accused of perpetrating against his chattel slave, Sally Hemings. We have been taught about the oppression of Africans, and particularly African men and women and children by white masters, and so we read that cruelty 
and oppression back into Hagar's relationship with Abram. We must not do this. And as we go through the history of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar, we will see why the comparison is defective. Verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So again, it's been ten long years since God promised Abram he would make him into a great nation. Waiting for the fulfillment of that promise was difficult, and so quite understandably, given the weakness of our human nature and our propensity to be resistant to waiting on the Lord, Can I get an amen? Okay. We're resistant to waiting on the Lord. Sarai took matters into her own hands. Now, there's a sermon in that. I don't know about your wives or your wife. But I will tell you that some of us are married to women who have a tendency to take matters into their own hands. Now, I am married to a woman who is not devious in it. It's just right there. It's not hidden at all. But the good thing is, It rarely comes from her manipulation or jealousy. But if anybody knows my wife, she knows my wife has a tendency. What? Come on, say it. Come on, those of you that know her and love her. Come on, Eleanor, you can say it. Take matters into her own hands. But of course, you and I have been taught that women are not moral agents because feminism has given one thing to men and one thing to women. It's given men the freedom to cry and it's given women the freedom to no longer be moral agents. No woman is ever responsible for anything under feminism. (laughs) Least of all, killing her unborn child. It's just nasty men that make her do it. And so, when we read a story like this, is that what this is? It's a story? You know, let's, let's stop there. Ever since we had the deconstructionists rip literature to shreds, we have had this superiority towards texts that just we feed on in education. And we look at any text and we reduce it to a narrative, a story, and we assume our superiority to it and and, and we disdain the author. We disdain the subjects. We just decide what we want from the text and we get it for ourselves. And so if you read commentaries about this particular historical account of Scripture, you'll find that even the most conservative Bible commentators reduce it to a story. Does that make sense to you? It's a story. 
Now, they're not saying it's not a true story. But you know when you have somebody writing a book published by Erdman's, which is a conservative reform publisher in Grand Rapids, and they refer to this as a story, even if they are inerrantists, even if they are evangelical, you know when they say story, that they're, you know their chest isn't caving in. You know that their chest is going out. And they are assuming a position of superiority over the text. And you know that if they look at this as a story, as a narrative, they will read into the narrative all of the conceits that you and I have as people alive in 2015. Now, I know you don't have any conceits, but I do. And principle among my conceits is that you may be a sexist, but I'm not. And you may be anti-Semitic, but I'm not. And you may be a racist, but I'm not. And of course, immediately, since we have a story and a narrative here, we know that Abram was a male chauvinist pig. And that Sarai had no moral agency and that Hagar was a chattel slave. Do you see this? You read this, you can't help it. You may not have any conscious thoughts of judgment against God, against Sarai, against Abram, even against Hagar. You may just read this and and just say, well, that's such a nice story. Or that's such a stinking story. But, you know, Scripture's just a story. And who needs to take it seriously? The important thing is Galatians. And so we go back here and we read this. And we have all our cultural prejudices, all our conceits, all our superiorities, all our political ideologies in the text. And we're not even aware of it. We're not even aware of it. And then the pastor starts talking about the Civil War (laughs) and women and pregnancy, and childbearing, and infertility, and story, and narrative. And because we're so coddled, right? That's one of the principal words you need to know today if you're alive, coddled. We're so coddled that we think the pastor's abusing us. But he's not. He's reading the, the history And he's trying to think, how will we view this history? Now, you may think that this is something that only perverse men preaching today would do. With an emphasis on men. All right? But what does Luther say about this account, this historical account, this history? What does Luther say? It's very interesting. Luther says about this that wicked men at his time interpreted this as being an account of Abram's lust. That Abram lusted after his slave woman, his wife's slave maid, and that Abram took her for himself. And I'll bet that there are an awful lot of women here today who are married who are prepared to believe that that's actually what went on. Because you know your husband. And it seems like there's only one thing he thinks about.
No, none of you. No. No. And here's what Luther says about that. Luther says that a thief thinks everyone steals. Now, he doesn't use that expression, but that's exactly what he says. He says it's just perfectly natural for men who are consumed with lust to look back at this account and to assume that their sin was the driving force behind Abram going in to Hagar. And then he says, no, no. He says, don't pervert the godly in scripture because of your own sins. Don't judge other people by your wickedness. And so today, many of you probably are maybe thinking, sitting, thinking, well, I didn't think that. I wasn't sitting here thinking that Abram was a pervert who wanted another woman. I was thinking something else. So that's why you continue to have preachers with the text remaining the same and preachers come from your own time and your own place. Because then they have your sins and they're able to preach to their sins. And so what do we do? Well, we look at this account, this historical account. So we don't look at this necessarily and think immediately of, um, of Abram being a dirty old man and lusting after Hagar and going into it. What we think is, what is wrong with those people that they're so fixated on what? On children. That's what it is. It's children. And we look at it and we say, Abram was a typical male chauvinist pick. He was so concerned to have a son that he put his wife into a situation where she had no choice but to solve it by telling Abram that he could have her mate. And I'm so thankful that today, now if I say that, be on guard, because anytime I say that, you know, I'm thankful that today, it's not good. Okay, I'm so thankful to today that we've evolved, that's another sign that it's not good, progressed, another one, that we've evolved and progressed to the point where a woman doesn't have to have a child to have meaning in life. Right? This is what we all think. You know, they were an ancient patriarchal Luddite, stupid, bird-brained, ignorant, uneducated, time, people. And we can condescend to learn spiritual truths from their history, while at the same time judging the snot out of them. And I know the danger of saying these things is that all of you judge me and you say, that's not what I'm thinking. But I have been a pastor and have counseled and loved enough to know it is what you're thinking. And I won't be shaken off the scent by you. Yeah, I just won't do it. I won't do it. 
But then I have the advantage of having read the modern commentaries. And I know that's what they're thinking. Listen to this. This is a statement by a commentary, as I say earlier, that's been published by Erdman's. You know, comes out of a reform, Dutch reform background, very conservative, very three forms of unity, Heidelberg, right, catechism. And here's what they're, and this guy's very respected among Genesis commentators. His name is Hamilton, and this is what he says. Victor Hamilton. He says, quote, Sarai must through some means, any means, have progeny. Now, the word must speaks obliquely of pressure from outside of herself. Do you understand that? The implication is that she has exterior pressure on her. She must have progeny. And the word progeny is the word you use when you want to dehumanize babies. You know, if he had written, Sarah had a passion for babies, well, we're wired to like passions, and we're wired to like babies. And so if he wrote, Sarah had a passion for babies, it wouldn't do it. It wouldn't do it. Sarah must have progeny. Whatever the heck progeny is. This story, now notice, story, not history, This story reflects, I kid you not, word for word, I'm going to read it. This story reflects the replacing of marriage's primary purpose of companionship by that of reproduction with all the resulting negative effects. If I I had one sentence, if I had one sentence to summarize Everything that's wrong. With everything. (laughs) It's that sentence. Why? Well, because what we have here is not a man who's lustful and is reading lust into Abram. We have a man who's alive in 2015. And so he's reading our sins back. And what are our sins? We despise children. We hate children. You say, oh, no. Gitchy, gitchy, goo. I say, we hate children. Why, mothers holding babies in their arms right now hate those babies. You say, oh, no, 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 no. I say, oh, yes, 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 yes. Do you think it's easy to be a mother? Do you think it's easy to nurse a child? Do you think it's easy to have a child that might be taken from you in a few months because the mother rethinks herself? Do you think it's easy to be vulnerable and to give birth to a child and that child might turn out to be apostate? Do you think it's easy to give your lifeblood, to give your nights as well as your days to a child who keeps you from earning all the money that you could earn and get all the status that you could have. Nobody has more status today than a mother who's despised her own flesh and blood and given herself to the chattel slavery of the corporation. 
The suckers in our culture are women who are looking for work after they've raised their children. We patronize them. And so here you have a perfect example of a biblical scholar in the Protestant tradition, in the conservative, reformed Protestant tradition, who says that right here with Abram and Sarai, what we have is a manifestation of pressure being brought to bear on a woman so that she feels she has to have children. And that moment when she goes ahead and gives her servant girl to her husband is the moment where there is no longer relationship, no longer intimacy, no longer friendship, but simple reproduction of progeny has taken over, and from this point on, it's hell in a handbasket. Because there's no more relationship in the marriage, it's just about children. And what what person reading this is not going to think, oh boy, I better make sure that I marry some man that's not fixed on children, but rather wants me as his best friend. And so you have these insane engagement things. It's insane. And now the, the true test of a man who's ready to marry is not that he has enough money together to provide for a wife and children, but rather that he has so much romance together that you can take movies of the engagement process and show them for generations to come, and that's true manliness. He's such a romantic. And I ask you who are married, how long does that last? I'm sorry, but I find it repulsive. I want a man who looks at a woman and says, till death, you and your children, I will never, yes, you will stink, I will stink. You'll be a rebel, I'll be a you-know-what. Till death. But they've got us trying to prove that the most important purpose of marriage is friendship, relationship, intimacy. And you can't have intimacy and childbearing at the same time. I mean, we all know what happens the minute you bear children. Out the door goes the intimacy and friendship and companionship. Honey, the baby's crying. People, this is so wicked. It's so wicked. It's so contrary to truth. If you're a father like me, occasionally you think, what if my wife died? And then you think, if my wife died, I don't ever want to see my sons again. Why? Because they remind me of my wife. And I don't think I could bear it. And yet somehow we've gotten to the point that having children robs us of companionship and love. Robs us of mutual harmony. Robs us of intimacy. 
And that's the sterile and brutal world that we have been given. Where even our Bible scholars in the commentaries tell us we have to make a choice between friendship and children. And the truth is, I would never have known what friendship with my wife would have been if I had not had children with her. And by God's mercy, I didn't have a choice to have children. He forced them on us. In an unseemly way. And you know, I wonder if I'd had the faith to have children if God had not forced me. So Heather comes out. And boy, my commitment to my wife, it goes through the roof. May you stay forever young. Went in and turned on Dylan. Played it loud. Forever young! So now, I see my wife holding my granddaughter, holding her. And where have we gotten as a, as, as a people that we look at children as being antithetical to love? It's so godless and it's all through the church and I get fed at my commentaries when I'm preparing to preach. It's no wonder pastors don't know their people anymore. Why would a pastor know his people if he's taught his people not to have children and know children and give themselves up to children? Why would a pastor give himself up for his flock if he's taught the women of the church to go out and earn money. There's no pastoral care in the church. Why? Well, because there's no fatherhood and motherhood in the home. And so we look back at this story and we say, well, Abram, he was, he was a disgusting man. He had lust He was fixated on children. What could Sarai do? She didn't have any choice. She had to give him her her servant girl, her maid. And, 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 And the maid. She had no choice in this. And so we go around and and we're so absolutely conceited. We're so conceited. We're convinced that we're not racist. We're convinced we're not sexist. We're convinced, pretty soon we'll be convinced we're not even speciest. Specious, yes, but not speciest. That was for you, Brian. And I'm telling you, you you actually believe your own press? You actually believe it? You actually believe you're not racist? You're completely racist. Completely and utterly racist. 
There's never been a people that have not been racist. Never. But the racism we have today is a racism that we haven't quite caught up to, and so we're always repenting of the racism of a century or two ago because that's about how bright we are. And the one thing we know from this text of Scripture, which gives us the history of what happened, is that Sarai was a moral agent. Now look at it. It says what? It says, now Sarai, so it starts the story with Sarai. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she... Again, Sarah, I had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now that's a statement of faith. She doesn't think because she can describe infertility that God's agency is removed, the stupidity of us today, thinking that we can describe thunder and lightning, we can describe earthquakes, we can describe infertility, and God's not involved. That God neither closes the womb nor opens the womb. Now, Sarai knew that God had made the decision. The Lord, she says in verse 2, has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Come on, the moral agency of women. Please go into my maid. Do you see it? Does everybody see it? Please go into my maid. Perhaps you... (laughs) perhaps you shall obtain. No, it says perhaps I shall obtain children through her. Listen, if you want to deny that Scripture is accurate, if you want to say that Scripture lies, go ahead and say it. But if you have an understanding that Scripture is God's word, and you see the word I there, and you see Sarai and she, you must acknowledge that Sarai is the initiator of this method of stopping being dependent on God and starting to take matters into her own hands. And if you're a woman with the slightest bit of self-perception, the slightest bit, you will recognize this is you. This is you. You take matters into your hands. And the reason you do it is because you can't trust your husband to do it. Right? He's a lummox. You know, sometimes you have to kick him to wake him up to what's going on. You know, the ability of your husband to be in a home where every single child is screaming, bloody murder! pulling on their mother, kicking their brother, knocking the wall, peeing on the floor. And he's just dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum. And Sarai knew this was her lummox husband. And so she took matters into her own hands. And she went to him, she said, now see here, this is what you do. You go into my servant girl. You go into Hagar, right? And perhaps... We shall obtain children through her. Now, what it actually says in Hebrew here is, I will be built through her. So they translate, I will be built through her. 
I will obtain children through her. And listen, you may deny this, but I will tell you absolutely that this is still today how women see their lives. They are built through their children. Okay? I always tell men in premarital counseling, don't be confused. She doesn't want a a husband. I know she's told you she does. I know she tells you that you're like best friends forever. But what she really wants is the father of her children. And if you don't begin to have dignity, she won't trust you to be the father of her children. She may feel her heartstrings tugged by such a wuss. But when the enemy comes, she won't trust her children with you. So you better begin to have some dignity. You better begin to be at least a little bit scary. In other words, you better begin to be a man. And Sarai says, perhaps I will be built through her. And, and, what does it say? It says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now, if you know the Bible, you know that that's a word-for-word reproduction of another sentence in Scripture. Okay? And that other sentence in Scripture is where? Here it is. It's where God comes... To Adam after the fall. And God says this in Genesis 3.17. Then to Adam he, God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. So you remember how Abram's a male chauvinist pig, right? And you know I am. I mean, there's never been any doubt about that. And so the point of this sermon today is don't listen to the voice of your wife. Right? Actually, right. When God has spoken, I do not care what she says to you. I don't care what she threatens to withhold from you. I don't care what she explains to you, and I don't care what famous preachers and Bible scholars, I don't care what novels, I don't care what movies, I don't care what music she puts on. I don't care how much you love her. When God has spoken, it is your job as the head of your home to listen to God. And if you don't do that, you will create the mess that Abram created, Abram created, by listening to the voice of his wife. After the service this morning, a man that I have a a great deal of respect for in this church, the highest respect for this man, came up to me and he said to me that his wife 
often says to him that wives need to be very careful what they say to their husbands. And why? Well, it's because we don't love our wives. It's because we have no relationship with them. I'm being facetious. It's because we're such jerks that we don't listen to them, so they better be very careful how they speak to us. They better be very careful what they say to us. Because we won't hear it anyhow because we're just nasty. We don't listen to them. I had a very, very funny thing happen. Uh, Talking to a couple in this church that we're friends with one day at a restaurant. And the wife was explaining her frustration that her husband never listens to her. And I was sitting there and I knew this couple pretty doggone well. And I knew that if there was one thing that was true of this husband, it was that he listens to his wife. And so I said to her, so in the other areas of his life, like in his business, do you notice that he doesn't listen to people? And she was a little confused. And I said, well, like, for instance, take such and such and such and such. Is he at a disadvantage because he doesn't listen to people and so he doesn't know what they're thinking, doesn't know what they're going to say, doesn't know what they're going to do? And she, she was thinking, she, well, well, no, no. Actually, in the business context, he's, he's quite good, you know, before somebody even has the thought. He knows what they're going to think. I said, yeah, that's your husband. I said, so he does it everywhere else, but then when it comes to you, he's just oblivious to what your thoughts are. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't think what you think, he doesn't know what you think, and he doesn't listen to you, right? I said, no, he listens very carefully. And before you ever open your mouth, he knows what you're going to say. Well, then she got very depressed. And I couldn't figure out. I thought that would be a liberating thing for me to explain to her. (laughs) You know? I thought I had helped! (laughs) You know? (laughs) I said, how come you're depressed? And she said, well, she said, because now I know that He knows what I think, and he still doesn't agree with me. And I said, you know, every single wife thinks that her husband has not listened to her and understood her until he agrees with her. A little secret husbands have, we share with each other every now and then. But you know, husbands love their wives. We do. You know? And if we allow our wives to determine how we show it to them, there's no end to that. And it will lead us to sin against the command of God, as it led Adam and as it led Abel. And when you stand before God, as Adam did in the garden, You're not going to be able to say, the woman you gave to me, she took of the tree of the fruit and gave it to me. Did you notice how much slack he got cut by God because he said that? No. Abram and Sarai and Hagar were just like you and me. Just exactly like us. Sarah, I loved Abram. I'm convinced that both 
and we'll have reason as we go forward in the text to see that they actually treated Hagar quite well in many ways. You know, if I can tip my hat to which side of the fence I'm on, who was it that named Ishmael? Who told the name? That God told the name, right? You all know that. God gave him the name, but who named him? It wasn't Hagar. It was Abram. What's the significance of that? Well, that little action keeps Ishmael from being a bastard. Abram acknowledged his child. And so the title of this sermon is what? The title of this sermon is His Wife. The whole thing is a mess. There's sin enough to go around in this whole account. There's faithlessness. But I want, to, I want to end with one more thing about this story. This history. Okay? And that is, do you think that Abram wanted to take Hagar? Do you think that Abram wanted to go in to Hagar? And I'll tell you something, I don't think he did. And you say, well, on what basis do you say that? And I say, well, it's just a sneaking suspicion. But you know something? All the indications are that Abram and Sarai loved each other. God did not make marriage for concubines, and he didn't make marriage for multiple wives for polygamy. And we know that both of them knew the promise of God. We know that both of them sacrificed to God I don't think that Abram wanted to go into her. We have no indication that he did. We do, what we do have an indication of is that Abram listened to the voice of his wife. And so, don't judge your husband. You woman, you wife, you mother are a moral agent. You be careful what you say to your husband. He will answer to God. But if you were Sarai, would you want this little phrase in Scripture at this point, Abram, listen to the voice of Sarai? No. No, no, no. Nope. Okay. We're all big boys and big girls now. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. You, woman, you man, you mother, you father, you grandfather, you grandmother, you son, you daughter. Don't blame your wife, don't blame your husband, don't blame your father, not not my mother, nor my Remember that song? But it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Let's come to the Lord's table and eat. 